Well, good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. Grateful that God's brought us together this morning. Again, thank you to Matt Nambers Rust and everyone else who helped make the DHS lunch happen yesterday. We're grateful for you. I would also be remiss if we also didn't pray for another event that's happened in the life of our church, and that is the engagement of Charlie and Beth Winslow. I would have said Charlie's last name if I know what it is. What is it? Johnson? Oh, okay. That's, that's pretty... It's decent. <laughs> Uh, also, uh, I have five copies of this book left. This is called Sophie and the Heidelberg Cat. It's by Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson is a pastor in London. He also wrote the book last year on spirit-filled ministry. And this is the Gospel Coalition's Children's Book of the Year. I have five left while your kids are in the nursery. Come get Christmas presents for them. Someone want to help me out with that? There. What do you know? What do you know? This weekend, I asked uh, somebody if they'd seen episode nine yet. And of course, I was referring to the latest of the current Star Wars series, The Rise of Skywalker. But this person's immediate response was, wait, episode nine has been released? I thought there were only seven. And this person, of course, was talking about The Mandalorian, this Disney Plus thing that is getting way more traction than... Star Wars might be at the box office. This person almost ran home to their wife and kids and fired up the old tube to watch the missing episodes. But to their dismay, I was talking about the real Star Wars. Ooh. So Star Wars came out this weekend, and I won't tell you how Darth Vader comes back and how he flies the Millennium Falcon to Jakku, and he has brunch with Jar Jar Binks, but it was good. But I will tell you that one of the reasons that I love the Star Wars movies is because of their depiction of dark and light. Because of their depiction of good and evil. Star Wars almost always doesn't pull any punches about what is right and what is wrong, what is light, what is dark, what is good and what is evil. Which can be really refreshing in an odd way in the world we live in. And there's a message that comes through in Star Wars, and that is this, that there is an evil force that needs to be overcome with good. There is an evil force that needs to be overcome with good. And what's even more remarkable at times is that this evil force is oftentimes very, very difficult to overcome. And in the end... It always takes some kind of extreme self-sacrifice to overcome it. Things don't change on their own. Evil doesn't change on its own. What is bad, what is wicked, what is evil, what is wrong, needs an outside force to come in to overcome it and to ultimately change it. And we know this to bring it down to our level. We know that there are great evils in our day and that have been around since the beginning of mankind that need outside forces. Addictions. Racism. Oppression. Bigotry. 
These are great evils. These are great sadnesses and darknesses that need outside forces to come in to overcome them. And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about this morning in this sermon as we finish our four-part series in Advent. And as we've said, one of our traditions here at the Gathering Church is to reflect during the Advent season on how the incarnation of the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed us because the ultimate good has come and broken into our world. The ultimate good, the Son of God, the rightful King of Israel, the true Prince of Peace has come into this broken and dark world to overcome it. He's called the light of the world. The light of the world in which the darkness cannot overcome. And at Christmas we celebrate this. We celebrate the fact that this outside force, this outside person, this outside God who is apart from this world has come into it and he has come to us. And this is Christmas. This is what exactly we are celebrating this morning, that Jesus Christ lived among us. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life of obedience to his father and he died in our place as a substitute, taking the full wrath of God, which is the punishment for our darkness. And this man... This man, Jesus Christ, this outside force who's come into this world and into our lives if we are Christians, and who offers to come into your life this morning if you're not a Christian, has a radical impact on all of our lives. Today in our text will be in Isaiah chapter 8 and 9. A very famous Christmas text, the prophecy of the child who will be born to us, but the people, as we'll see at the beginning here, are a people who lie in deep darkness. And these people who lie in deep darkness need an outside force to come in, to change things, to overcome it. So if you have your Bibles, we'll start in Isaiah chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 16, and we'll start by reading 16 to 22. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living, to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you've given it to us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior and friend and Redeemer. We pray now that the Holy Spirit would come to us, you would illuminate your word, and we would all find our hope and our trust and our security and our joy this few days before Christmas in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make it so by the preaching of your word, and I ask you to help me as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. So three points this morning that are up on the screen for you there, but point one is the darkness, the verses we just read. Point two is the light, which we'll read in a moment, and point three is the coming sun. 
The darkness, the light, the coming sun. Point one, the darkness. So what is this force of darkness in this text that the people are experiencing? There's a force of darkness that these people are experiencing in, their t- in this text, and what is it? Well, I'll, I'll show it to us here in a moment, but I'll give you the answer at the beginning. It's unbelief. It's unbelief in the promises of God that have left these people in darkness. Let me set the scene here. Uh, the king at this point in the story in the book of Isaiah is Ahaz. Ahaz, the king, is worried about impending judgment that's about to come upon Judah. And up to this point, Isaiah is the prophet that's been sent from God to sort of put Ahaz at ease. He's basically come and told him to calm down, chill out, and to trust the Lord. He's told him to put his faith, his hope, his trust, and believe in the promises of God. But you see, we've already set up the problem here. And that is Ahaz and the people don't want to trust God. And because they don't trust in the promises of God, the only alternative to trusting in the promises of God is to lie in unbelief. So the people are finding themselves in the darkness of unbelief. But look in our text here, starting at verse 16 and through 18. He says things like in 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will find hope in him. This is Isaiah's personal testimony. He's declaring his own trust in the promises of God in verse 16 and 17 and 18. Look specifically at verse 18. He says this, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look at me, Israel. Look at me, this prophet of God. Even look at my children. We are standing here in the midst of what seems to be impending judgment, and we are resting and trusting in the promises of God. He even puts his children forward as an example. Look at the entire way that I've set up my household. Look at the way that my family lives. I think of an analogy of trying to convince somebody that the water is okay to get in. And you're sitting in the water, a father sitting in the water, and he brings his children into the water with him. And he says, look, it's safe. If it wasn't safe, I wouldn't bring my kids in here. It's okay. It's okay, come into the water. Trust. Rest. He says, the Lord of hosts will protect us. Verse 18. I am a sign from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Do you know what the Lord of hosts means? The Lord of hosts means that he's the Lord of a host of soldiers. He's saying that God is the battle captain. He's the one who commands legions of angels. He's saying he's the one who will protect us. He's saying, Isaiah is saying, look at my family. Our entire lives are built around the reality and trust that God alone is the one who who will protect us. So what do the people do? Verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums, and further on, should they inquire the dead on behalf of the living? The people respond by taking advice from mediums. The people respond by saying, we would rather hear from dead spirits than listen to the living God. 
We would rather have somebody inquire. We would rather go to some, some sorcerer, some magic worker, some person that can talk to darkness and find out what their advice is to do rather than listen to the living God. That's what it says. That's what it's saying. And in verse 20, it says, to the teaching and the testimony, which means that God has already spoken. He's already said who he is. He's already said what he's going to do. He's already given to them the standard, but they won't listen. Now, I'm sure that there's, apart from some of us that may have used a Ouija board accidentally at a weird party once, there's few of us who maybe actually look to literal mediums to find advice. There may be some of us who have. There may be some of us who have witchcraft backgrounds and so on. But most of us don't actually look to actual literal mediums to seek advice. But there is something that we all do. There is something, there is a common denominator that this text points to that all of us do do. (laughs) All of us turn to dead things for counsel. All of us turn to things that aren't living to console us. All of us look to inanimate dead things to bring us hope and security in our lives. First, why do we do this? And second, a few things on, I think, how we do this. Why do we do this? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is we want things to come into our lives to help us, to save us, to make us feel better that don't have any demands on us. We want things to come into our lives that don't have any moral demands on us, that come to us without any kind of terms. And we think that if it's dead, then it can make no demands on us. Of course, that's not true. I'll explain why in a second. But we want to be saved. We want to find hope. We want to find identity. We want to find significance apart from any kind of authority. And I think this is just natural human nature. We want things to get better without really having to change ourselves. We want things to get better without having to really change ourselves, right? Because the message is if somebody, if the God of the Bible comes in and rescues you and saves you by sheer mercy and grace alone, and you contributed nothing to it, then you owe him everything. If God comes into your life and you didn't deserve it at all, there's nothing you added to it. There's nothing you contributed to it. There's nothing that you, that you made God want to come to you. And he radically saves you because of his sheer mercy and grace. You owe him everything. But if you contributed something to it, if there was some good in you that contributed to him, well, then you don't owe him everything. Because part of it was from you. And we want that. We want salvation apart from moral authority in our lives. But the problem is that we look to dead things. We look to things that were created that are inanimate and so on. We think they don't demand anything from us, but they actually do. They demand our time. They demand our attention. Think about your career. Think about your looks, your cosmetics. Think about your physical appearance, your fitness. They promise you some kind of hope. Think about how many zeros are in your bank account. Think about your career. Think about your relationships. Think about the kind of car you drive, etc., etc. They are things that promise to give us hope. They're things that promise to give us counsel. They're dead things. They're dead things. 
And yet we spend time and effort and ultimately we become enslaved to them. They do actually demand something of us. But the problem is that the God of the Bible, what he demands of us is he demands all of us and he absolutely gives himself to us. You will never regret completely giving yourself to the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ. Never, never, never. And you will always regret giving yourself to some kind of dead, created thing that promises you hope because it'll never give it to you and it'll leave you empty and unsatisfied every single time. So what do the people get? What do they get as a result? Verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. It's exactly what we've been saying. The result, of course, is judgment. The result of their darkness, the result of their unbelief, is more darkness is judgment. They're wandering in the wilderness, but that's not it. It gets worse. Look at the second half of 21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their God and king and turn their faces upward. Their judgment... Their darkness results in more darkness. Darkness begets darkness. Evil begets evil. Distress gets deeper. They begin to be enraged at God. They shake their fist at God. They hate God all the more. The unbelief drives us into a deeper darkness and it drives us into a deeper unbelief. Sadly, we've seen people like this. Almost every single one of us have an example of somebody like this in our lives. Where darkness begets more darkness. Unbelief begets more unbelief. Distress begets more distress. They shake their fist at God more. They become more enraged. They turn their face to heaven and they scorn God. And the result of that is more darkness, more unbelief, more distress. Sin is not something that can just simply be changed by some kind of moral example showing us a better way. Sin is not just something that can be changed by changing a few habits and patterns and behaviors in our lives. Do you know why people don't believe in God? Because they don't want to believe in God. We don't believe because we don't want to believe. It's a matter of the will. There's not a couple things on the bookshelf that just need to be rearranged. There's not a couple habits and patterns in your life that if you just kind of fixed up, everything would just get better. The reason people don't believe in God is they don't want to believe in God. Because their wills are against him. They hate God by nature. You hated God by nature. You were a child of wrath before God saved you. Your nature was to shake your fist at God. And the result of that fist shaking was more darkness, more judgment, more distress. Darkness cannot stop being darkness unless some outside force comes upon it. The punishment of unbelief is more unbelief. The punishment of darkness is more darkness. The punishment is more affliction. And the punishment is ultimately hell. 
the punishment is ultimately hell. You remember how Jesus talks about hell in Matthew's gospel. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25. For to everyone who is, has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In a very real way, in a logical way, and in an expressly biblical way, but in an uncomfortable way, darkness and unbelief lead to a place of enduring darkness and sorrow. Hell is filled with people with an ever-deepening rage and hatred against God. Unbelief gets the judgment it deserves, which is to remain in unbelief. That's the darkness. The darkness is dark. The darkness is bleak. Second point, the light. The light. But. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought in contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff For his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you broke as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That word there in verse 9, but, 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 is one of the most glorious words in all of the scriptures. God is going to do something about the darkness. He says that there will be no gloom. And this phrase here, this phrase, this hinge, this change, but, but, is one of the most glorious phrases in all the Bible, and it explains and hinges, this hinge explains the entire story and message of the Bible, that only one can bring light. Only one can change things, and that is God. Only God can change things. The ones who rejected him, he chose to initiate his grace upon them. The ones who rejected him and shook their fist at him and raged against him when they were in darkness, when they didn't obey his word, when they didn't believe his word, when they continued to grow bitter and more bitter and darker and darker, he chose to initiate his saving grace in their life. Why? Because he's God and he does what pleases him. In his sovereign love and mercy, he simply chose to put his affection on these people, Israel. 
And in his sovereign love and affection for you, when you were raging at him and shaking your fist at him, he chose to sovereignly initiate grace in your life. Not because of anything that you did, not because there was any worth inside you that God said, it'd be great if you were on my team, but to accomplish his purposes in election, to bring glory to his name, to show himself to be the great and glorious one who's gracious to people who even shake their fist at him. This is the great passage in Ephesians. But God being rich in mercy. But God is the one who is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. These words but God. They're for sinners like you and me. Who were completely lost and unable to save ourselves. We were on a dead set rebellion against God, just like these people were at the end of chapter 8. I don't know that there are two more hopeful words that anyone could utter, but God. But God. Dead in our sins, dead to any real love for God at all. We were buried under a compounding and disorienting blindness because of our sin. We were in bondage to the prince of the power of the air, but God. We lived enslaved to the passions of our flesh, but God came in. We were children of wrath, but God. But God being rich in mercy, he showed his love for us while we were still sinners. That's amazing. And look at the text here. The second half of verse 1. The first place he goes is the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are the first ones. Why there? Why start there? These are the first ones that fell under Gentile domination. These names are almost like a, they're almost like a, 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 a nickname of sorts for unbelief, for darkness, for people that don't trust in the promises of God. And that's the first place he goes. That's the first place this gracious God mentions. I'm going to go to these people, the ones who were nicknamed, the ones who became kind of shorthand for unbelief. This is like going to the sinners and tax collectors. This is going to the lepers. This is going to the marginalized, those outside. That's what Jesus does, right? Jesus first goes to the outsiders. He goes to the outsiders. He goes to the countrysides. He goes to those who are outcasts. When he does the feeding of the 5,000, he goes out into the country. He goes out and finds those on the highways and byways. Vanessa and I have um, started reading again some of Flannery O'Connor's short stories. They're great stories. And uh, they have a... They're this kind of southern gothic style. They have this kind of religious, sarcastic tone to them, kind of poking holes in the, uh, the legalism, the Phariseeism of the day. And one of our favorites is called Revelation. And if you've read it, you know the story is about Mrs. Turpin, who's this very put-together uh, religious southern lady who's sitting very, very proper in the doctor's office. And the story is about how she's subtly judging everybody in the room. You have the internal tape going and about how she's so much more clean than this person. And, and of course, her, her children wouldn't act like those person's children. If, and if they were as good of a Christian lady as she was, then they'd surely have their act together. 
And she feels good for herself, of course, because she, she employs, uh, you know, the, the scum, the trash in town. They have a, they have a farm, and, and she's the one that, because she's the good lady and she's put together, she, they employ them, and they make sure that they can have a nice job and so on. But the whole time, she's, she just feels so superior to them. And the story ends like this. She's, uh, she's going out to the pigsty, and she falls into the mud. And suddenly she has this vision, and this is the vision that she has. She sees heaven opened to her. She sees this road, this highway, and upon it, she says, was a vast horde of souls tumbling toward heaven. They were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives. The bands of the blacks in white robes, battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lie ahead. And in a moment, the vision faded, but there she was, and she remained immobile. The first will be last, and last will be first. Jesus came to save those who were sick and needed a Savior, those who sat in darkness, those who sat in gloom, those who know that they come with empty hands, those that know that apart from God's intervening act in our lives, we have nothing. And when we see it, when we see that he came to us by his sheer grace and mercy alone, nothing in my hand I cling, simply to thy cross I bring. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Then we realize that we owe him everything. We owe him our entire lives. And the result, of course, is not some kind of yoke or burden. The result, read the text. The result, verse 3, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The result of seeing the sheer grace and mercy from God come into lives is absolute, utter joy. It's a kind of joy unspeakable. It's not a burden it's not a yoke that's come into their life. It's an absolute joy. It's, it's salvation has come. God has come. The darkness has been lifted. The gloom is leaving. Have you experienced that kind of overwhelming, unexpected joy before? That just kind of joy that you didn't see coming? Maybe the circumstances were challenging and difficult, and then wham, out of nowhere, some kind of just wonderful, unexpected, overwhelming joy comes into your life. That's happened to me a few times. One time, you'll, you, many of you know this. A few years back, my wife has two miscarriages in a row, and then wham, out of nowhere, we get pregnant with twins. Not that God's going to heal every miscarriage with twins. I certainly don't mean that, but I'm just trying to describe a kind of overwhelming joy that just comes upon you. That's what this text is talking about. This text isn't talking about when you get two Snickers bar out of the vending machine instead of one. This text is talking about an overwhelming, life-altering, kind of enduring joy. Look at verse 5. 
This is what they do. They take all the implements of war and they throw them away. They burn them. You're not going to need them anymore, they say. We don't need to have our spears and our swords and our carts, our chariots. We just don't need them anymore. That's the kind of joy. The war is over. This is V-Day. This is it. This is victory day to these people. They don't need all this stuff anymore that they throw it in the fire. One thing I think is helpful for us to realize, though, is we understand this kind of light that's come in. We have to understand, in order to apply the light correctly, I've been doing it most of this sermon pretty, I've been hovering around it, but I want to say it explicitly. In the context, of course, the oppressor that's in mind is Babylon. The oppressor in mind is Babylon. That's the one that's going to come and judge the people and take them off into exile. So when they talk about relief from oppression, they're talking specifically about relief from exile. But for us to rightly apply this to our lives, we need to understand what our oppressor is. All right? For us to rightly understand and rightly apply this kind of joy into our lives, to experience the kind of joy, because that's some serious joy that's coming down the pipe there in 3, 4, and 5. For us to rightly apply it, we have to know what the oppressor is. What do you think your oppression is? If we were honest with ourselves, it's three days before Christmas. If we were honest with ourselves about where our mind has been in the last week, what we think is oppressing us, some of us... In other words, if this thing changed, that's a good way to know what you think is oppressing you, to find out what's oppressing you. In other words, your mind is on the the thought, if this thing changed, things would be better. For some of us, it's politics. For some of us, the recent vote to impeach the president is, is, is concerning to us. To others of us, it makes us really happy. For other of us, three days before Christmas, we're thinking about our bank accounts. Other of us are thinking, our minds are consumed with, if I weighed 10 pounds less, if I weighed 20 pounds less. If we're honest with ourselves, what's oppressing you? Some of us think, if the relationships in my life were righted with my parents, with my spouse, with my children, these are all things that in many ways are good to long for. It's okay to desire to be financially okay. It's okay to desire to be in good shape and healthy so you can serve people, not so just so you can look good. It's okay to desire for your relationships to be made right. Right? But that's not what's ultimately oppressing you. What's ultimately oppressing you is sin, Satan, and death. What's ultimately oppressing you is sin, Satan, and death. And until you realize that that's what was truly oppressing you, and that oppression was be lifted, has been lifted because of what Jesus has done for you. Until you understand the diagnosis, you won't know where to go for the relief. The true diagnosis, your true problem, your true oppression is sin. The sin that resides inside you and the sin that resides in this world around us, it's the power of Satan, it's the power of death. But that oppressor has been conquered by Jesus. That oppressor has been conquered by Jesus. So therefore, 
your biggest problem isn't your bank account or the relationships around you. Your biggest problem is that you are at enmity with God, and that's over. You're right with God. So instead of dwelling on the, the, the things of, of, of what you think is your oppression and the ways that you can fix it, instead dwell on how God has accomplished it for you. And that's where your mind needs to meditate. That's, what you, that, that's how you will know that you truly knew and know what ultimately oppresses you. Do you wake up thinking about how to make more money or do you wake up praising God for his grace and mercy that he's shown you in Jesus Christ? My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. It is well. It is well. It is well with my soul. Your biggest oppressor has been conquered for you. And just like the people of Israel, our oppression is our own unbelief. If we don't understand our oppression, our oppression, we will look to the wrong place for the solution. So this year, these days before Christmas, let's look to the solution that's already been given to us. There's a lot of things that are going to promise us joy. There's a lot of things in this world that promise us joy unfettered pursuit of your sexuality, the pursuit of fame or success. And God in his kindness tells us that we think these things will be joyful, but he knows better. But he is a fount of unending joy. And we can trust him because he has conquered sin and death for us. Everything else at that point is just icing on the cake because the true joy can't be taken from you. Broken relationships, sickness, disappointments, trials, depression, suffering, all those things can't take your true joy from you because it is secure in Jesus Christ and nothing can overcome his victory. Light has come into your life this Christmas season and it is an enduring light and joy. Regardless of the setbacks and sorrows that we experience, you can be more sure of your joy in Jesus Christ, and you can be sure that the sun will rise tomorrow morning. Your joy is secure in him. So point three, how does he do it? How does God bring this kind of joy into our life? Well, it's Christmas, you know the answer. He sends a son. He sends a son. Look at verse six, four. This is a grounding clause. It tells us how's it gonna happen. So we've seen darkness, we've seen the promise to alleviate and remove the darkness. How's it going to happen? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the battle captain, the zeal of the one who commands the soldiers will do this. We find a wonderful combination of excellencies that our soul needs in this son. Look at the ways he described these four ways. Mighty counselor, 
mighty, excuse me, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's our counselor. There's a counselor, there's a son, there's a reigning son who's going to sit on the throne of David, which means he's the king. There's a reigning son who is the king, but he's also a counselor to us. He's one that's going to be able to give us uh, the wisdom and the guidance that we need. And his counsel isn't just okay. His counsel isn't just adequate. His counsel is wonderful. It's wonderful counsel. It's advice that you just need to hear. He's got better advice for you than anyone else in your life. He's got better advice than any blog that you read this year is going to give you. Turn to him. Turn to him in his word. Look to him. He's the wonderful counselor. He's amazing. And it's wonderfully different from the advice of this world. He knows because he lived among us in all our trials born to be our friend. He knows our need to our weakness who is he is no stranger. He knows how to give wonderful and excellent counsel. He's mighty. And that, that speaks to the need in our life for strength and power. For strength and power to live. There's no greater power in all the universe than this kind of power. This is the kind of power that prevails over all of his enemies. It's the kind of power that's full of hope. It's a kind of power that is sure, that is strong, that is able, will accomplish what it intends to accomplish because it is the power of God himself. Mighty God, this son who is the king who reigns is God himself. He's an everlasting father. He's an everlasting father. We all have needs. At times, sometimes we need a firm hand to come to us, to discipline us, and to move us along or to correct us. And sometimes we need the tender hand of a father with gentle care, like a strong shepherd moving the sheep along, giving provision, giving protection, giving care. And his fatherhood is everlasting. It never ends. You don't go to this father's funeral. He's never going to get old. He's never going to get senile. He's never going to forget. You're never going to have to take care of him. Because he's the everlasting Father. And he's the Prince of Peace. The peace that speaks to our inner need for rest, for quiet, for those of us that struggle with inner turmoil at times, where we feel at odds within ourselves. One of the ways I've described depression is I don't feel what I think I should feel. I don't feel what I know in my brain. I feel something different. That's depression. It's anxiety. But he's the prince of peace that comes in and gives us the quietness, the rest, the shalom that we need from trouble, from inner turmoil. And the government shall be upon this wonderful person's shoulders. 
The government will be on this wonderful person's shoulders. He's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to establish it and hold it forever. And there will be no end to it. And that's what we celebrate this week and every day. And I'll close with this. And we know this. That he can only bring us this kind of freedom from oppression because he himself was oppressed. He can only bring this kind of freedom from oppression. He can only come into our lives in this radical sort of way because he himself was oppressed for our sake. He was born in an outpost of the Roman Empire, of the lowest estate, of the lowest means, on the oppressive rule of the emperor. He was oppressed by the religious leaders. He was repressed by the governors of his time. He was repressed by his own people that he came to save. And at the end of his life, he endured the ultimate act of oppression. He experienced the wrath of God for your sake. He was cast into the ultimate outer darkness. The writers of Hebrews will tell us that he suffered outside the camp. He experienced enduring pain. He experienced enduring wrath and discipline and anguish and oppression so that you and I could know him as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the King who's coming to reign, the Son, God himself. Let us pray.